As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Francis Donald joins us right now. This is an important brief, really good at the minutia that adds up to our gross domestic product. Francis, if we don't get a recession, but we get sort of kind of like a muddle, 1.5%, 1 1.1%, 0.7% GDP, not under zero, what does that feel like? Uh, well, it depends how the central banks respond to it. But, Tom, I'm more concerned about that very slow but persistent uh, weakness than I am about a garden variety recession. Yeah. We know what to do in garden variety recessions, and we know that central banks historically pivot. But what we're witnessing is, yes, a COVID distorted economy where we're seeing desynchronized elements. We're seeing a consumer that hanged or hung on much longer than they would have in other cycles. Housing is already starting to reaccelerate. I'm not sure we're going to get the same sort of response in things like GDP data to the traditional shocks that we've seen. And therefore, the risk is that uh, we continue to hear, well, there's no recession, right. and therefore you can go long. But if the Fed says, well, no recession means we hold, that's a very different investment playbook. Francis, you got a, a colored dot chart. It looks like the new Louis Vuitton purses that everybody's buying right now. Don't ask me, folks, while well, I know about that. But the chart you mentioned is one of your great concerns is what Lisa mentioned earlier, which is M2 growth. I'm surprised that Francis Donald is going monetarist on us. Discuss that. Well, actually, I'm not just a monetarist. We look at all elements that potentially lead to economy and uh, doing poorly. And that's the problem here, Tom, is that no matter what way you assess where growth is going, basically every traditional leading indicator of recessions is flashing red. And some of these are flashing red, not consistent with garden variety or small recessions, but some of the big problems that we had, like in 2008. Now, is that necessarily where you're going? No. But what I say to my 
is even if we cut in half our concern about downsides in growth, we're still looking at a very difficult economic environment. And to ignore the breadth of the challenges that exist and the breadth of the weakness we see in leading indicators, I think is going to be problematic. And what's interesting here, Lisa, is Lizanne Saunders really underscoring this out on Twitter yesterday where you were on M2 Growth. Well, and and John was mentioning earlier as well, this idea of what happens when suddenly the restriction by by central banks starts to play out in markets. Francis, you say that an economic muddle might not be so great. It's very difficult to read because we don't understand what the different inputs are and where we are in the economic cycle. But if you just take it at face value, why isn't it the Max Kettner view of things? Where basically, if it's not too hot, not too cold, the Fed's kind of stuck in the middle and things can grind forward at least for a few more months. Because we're at extremely high levels of interest rates for this level of the economy, and we're heading towards a sizable credit crunch. And this is why data like the senior loan officer survey that we should be getting by May 8th is going to be just so incredibly important. Because even if GDP numbers are not negative, this is still an economy that's going to struggle to produce revenue. It's going to struggle to produce jobs. We're going to have to move away, just like we've moved away from the concept of the unemployment rate giving us a good sense of the health of the labor market, we're going to have to move away from GDP as giving us a good sense of general economic activity that exists. And if the Federal Reserve is still going to be focused on these traditional indicators like GDP and unemployment and even the PCE inflation rate, then we're not going to get relief from them. And this is a market that has already priced in some relief. So the weak, the problem with slow growth that isn't a full-blown recession is that we likely don't get relief on the rate size. And this is going to produce a challenging risk environment. So, Francis, when you start talking about some of the uh, challenge profits and things at corporations, this has been one of the most surprising aspects of this earnings season. I was looking yesterday at Procter & Gamble at Kimberly-Clark, and their profit margins expanded. They were able to raise prices on consumers more than their underlying uh, inflationary inputs. What does this say about just how much weakness or not there is, how much tolerance there still is in consumers to absorb all of those price increases? Well, it speaks to the desynchronized nature of this environment. But as we move forward and we see credit pull back even more sharply, and we see some of the challenges that flow through primarily to small businesses. I mean, let's remember that small businesses are heavily credit dependent, and they've created the majority of jobs since 2020. So as companies start to feel the pinch through the credit channels, they're going to have to be cutting costs in some way. And I think that's going to flow through into the labor market. So again, we have a consumer that held on longer than it would have historically, but all evidence suggests XX savings are coming down, credit is not going to be available, and as you know, Lisa, there are already some signs that the labor market is going to weaken. So right now, there's some ability to absorb those price increases, but six months from now, not so much. And this is when the story is going to change. And it comes back to our job is not to tell us what's happening right now. Right now, we're okay. It's to look forward six months. This is why it's so key to disaggregate between coincident indicators, leading indicators, and lagging indicators. And when you do that, sure, coincident uh, data is just fine. But the leading indicators is where the challenge is. And confusing those two, I think, muddles the story. Francis, the Bank of England has a message for us all. We need to accept that we're poorer, apparently, in one of the most insensitive remarks we've seen from a central banker since Governor Bailey told us all to stop asking for a pay rise. This is what Hugh Bill has got to say. What we're facing now is the reluctance to accept that, yes, we're all worse off and we all have to take our share to try and pass that cost onto one of our compatriots and say, we'll be all right, but they will have to take our share too. This is bizarre. 
he's effectively saying, Francis, we need to accept that inflation is high and that wage growth won't be enough and we shouldn't push for higher wages. Francis, what do you make of those comments from Hugh Pill of the Bank of England? Well, it's concerning in the sense that we know the bulk of these challenges have hit low-income households across the world who've seen their share of spending on food and energy rise. Uh, You know, I do interviews where the person prior to me is talking about, you know, record lines in food banks. So telling somebody that is struggling to put food on the table that they have to accept higher inflation is going to go down a little bit more problematically. However... The bigger investment concern here is that, again, we are used to in an environment where central banks provide relief, a central bank put. And comments like this keep me up at night because they say, you know, some of the difficulty we're seeing in, um, you know, uh, banks, some of the difficulty we're seeing for households is a feature, not a bug of current central bank policy. And it suggests we have to reassess that decision making function for all central banks globally. And if we do that, we may not be getting the standard relief rally that comes when you see lower growth. It's effectively a stagflation response function, and it is much more challenging for almost all asset classes than a you know, two-quarter dip, a Fed cut, or a Bank of England cut, and a reacceleration. I- I'm not sure the market has fully grasped on to the risk of a recession with no rate cuts. Comments like this you know, worsen my concern. Francis, thank you. Francis Donald of Manulife Investment Management. Peter Shearer, he gave the name Meta to Facebook. He's the one he called up Zuckerberg and said, you know, I think Meta has a has a direct and name to it. I still don't know what Meta uh, means. Joining us now, Peter Shearer, head of Macro Strategy Academy Securities. Pull together these narratives. I mean, you and I have never seen this before. Let's start with that. But pull together the narratives that are making radio and TV listeners and viewers head spin. I think we are on a slow bleed into the recession. It's gonna, it is coming. It's starting at the white collar level. I think I almost go back to the simplest thing. It's someone's expense is someone else's income. And everything I read is about people cutting expenses, which is going to hit someone's income, which is going to cause them in turn to cut their expenses. And I don't see anything switching that trajectory. I think the China reopening was a head fake. It was never really a big reopening. And to me, when OPEC Plus really cut production, they were seeing what we were already seeing. Freight was down. We're seeing shipping down. There is a economic slowdown occurring just below the surface, and it's slowly taking effect. It's going to be a grind. It's not going to be like a great financial crisis or anything. And the fact that the banks are in, you know, struggling with how to keep deposits is going to hurt lending, and that's going to hurt the small business, which has been a huge driver of success in the past. So decade. much to unpack there, Pete. So let's go with China. It's a pretty emphatic thing to say. The reopening was a head fake. Why was it a head fake? First, they were already partly open, so it wasn't like going from zero to 100. They were going from 60 to 80, 70 to 90, whatever that was. But also, they are focusing more and more on their own economy, right? We don't first, we already have this inventory. I hesitate to say glut, but I think we have an inventory glut. We have overbuilt. We have supply chains that have stacked up. So we don't really need China's production right now. And more and more, how I see this world shaping is you have China, again, we've said it before, aligning with the autocratic resource-rich nations. And what we're seeing, we're talking about the shift from made in China to made by China. And by that, I mean China used to take U.S. (coughs) products, manufacture, give them back to the U.S. companies who sold them globally. I think you're going to start seeing China trying to sell Chinese products globally a little bit more and be a true competitor. I think that's going to be the scary shift of the next few years. We can build on that later in the conversation if we have time. If the reopening of China is a head fake, what's Europe? 
with the CAC 40 up by almost 20%, the DAX up by 17%. What would you call that? You know, Europe to me has become a bit of a mess. They're trying to figure out, I think, where they fit in, right? Macron's approach G, they're figuring out how they want to deal with Ukraine. So I'm not, but the nice part is I think some of their companies were undervalued. They're mostly big global entities. So some of that catch up because they'd been behind made sense. I'm kind of very neutral to bearish on Europe. I think they've got their own set of problems. On the other hand, I'm fairly bearish to neutral globally right now. Well, that's where I was going to, that's what I was going to say. Is it really so much better in the U.S.? One of the uh, issues that you raised was smaller banks, regional banks, and the sort of ongoing grind that we see there. We've been talking about First Republic all morning. Is this a specific story or does it indicate something broader that is just going to grind out throughout the year? So I think there's two things going on. One is it's really been the shift away from this concern about losing your deposits or bankruptcy to much more, what yield am I getting on those deposits? And is that yield still functional for these banks? And then I think they've also said on Wall Street, I'm starting to tell my bosses this, you know, your assets walk out the door at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., whatever time your assets leave, it's your people. And if you start losing your people, that becomes very problematic. How do you retain those people in an environment where you're struggling? So is that really the key issue here, that we're going to see that more broadly throughout regional banks as bigger banks try to basically parachute in, take the best talent, and then they'll just be this drip, drip, drip that will carry out and tighten credit throughout the year. Yeah, I think it's going to make people have to come up with solutions fairly quickly, whether it's mergers, acquisitions. Again, they have some <clears throat> phenomenal relationships, some great business models at these places. Everyone I've talked to who ever banked with First Republic says they are phenomenal, the treatment they got. So there's value to that. And I think someone's got to capture that before those assets do walk out the door. Let me digress. We don't need a history lesson on Milton Friedman 101. Does M2 matter? Tell us what M2 is and why people like you pay attention. I have not been paying close attention to it lately. Again, it's been dropping off, but I, I think there's so many other It was factors. all the rage 30 years ago. Uh, it was all the rage, you know, back when we had to figure out when Alan Greenspan was carrying his briefcase in the left or right hand. They didn't tell us what they were doing. I actually thought it was easier sometimes when the Fed wasn't trying to do this forward guidance. They've gotten themselves in so much trouble, which is why I think they had to hike last time for 25 bips when they should have already been stopping before that. So I'm watching all these things, but I do think the economy is slowing down and it's showing up in some of the M2 declines. Are we super restrictive? right now when you add in the interest rate dynamics and the greater economy dynamics, the balance sheet dynamics, are we beyond restrictive? I think so. And part of this, it doesn't show up, but man, people don't have car leases coming due every year, but over a year, two years, three years, everyone's going to have to reset. Corporations did a phenomenal job during COVID issuing long-dated debt at very low interest rates. But some of that starts rolling off and it's going to take time for the you know 5% rates to hit the consumer, I think we're at the early stages of that, and it only gets worse. It's not like anyone's rolling their 5% to 5% right now. We're still having people rolling 3% to 6%, and that's going to weigh on this. So part of this conversation is about vulnerable parts of the market, and I promised you a pocket of time to come back to the point you made about the Chinese consumer and Chinese companies. Let's finish there. Who's vulnerable? Is it the Teslas of this world? Is it the LVMHs of this world? Can they really go about creating something like a luxury brand to compete with the European players, an EV operator? We know lots of names over in China. Where's the competition going to be most fierce? I think it's going to be for everyday items. So whether it's cars, you know, dishwashers, it's not going to be our quality, but they are going to try and sell their brands. They've taken a lot of the IP. They've got the manufacturing know-how now. It's not as good as what we produce or they produce for us, but it will be cheaper and they will aggressively market that. One of the things that really struck me on this was they just struck a deal with Brazil where they're going to make their BYD cars in Brazil. Now, part of 
that's for tax reasons and stuff. But that to me is just the signal that China wants to sell their things that were really only consumed by Chinese broadly. Amazing conversation, Pete. We could have for a long, long time. Peter Chia there Thank of you. Academy Securities, a head fake. The reopening in China, Tom, a head fake. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Christopher Marinak has not been a stranger. We really thank him for his participation. Seems like day after day. Director of Research, Jenny Montgomery Scott. Christopher, what was out there yesterday? Article to article, research note to research note, was a guesstimate of the haircut needed. Let's review. They have garbage loans, jumbo mortgages taken out at 2%, whatever. You can do the math. Is there a way for you to ascertain the required haircut for their management to find stability? I think there is. I mean, they have a lot of government securities and loans that are simply underwater because of interest rate. It's important that it's not a credit issue. It's more interest rates. And they've got fixed rate mortgages that were done at three, three and a half percent. And the world's easily two points higher, if not three. So that is the reason for the haircut. And of course, it's the uncertainty about the ability to raise capital. That's always where the challenge is for these banks going back many, many years and cycles. So I think that the lack of knowledge and of course, the lack of questions Monday night didn't help matters. Um, And so here we are. I think that the company needs a solution. There's three ways out of this. They can raise capital, they can sell or they can fail. Well, what's interesting here, Christopher, is the optionality this morning for Secretary Yellen and other government institutions. Do you suggest it'll be a clean haircut with or without government intrusion, or will they be able to negotiate some form of more full balance sheet takeout that includes some form of equity option? So the Treasury has a program in place for community development banks, CDFIs, where the uh, Treasury actually invested preferred last year at a 0% rate for two years, and then it was 2% after that. They would have to make a special dispensation to make uh, First Republic a CDFI, but it's not a crazy solution. It would actually give them capital from the government, a la TARP, like we did in 2008. But that would be a one-company solution. I'm not necessarily sure they're going to do that, but it is an option that... that, that uh, that uh, our secretary has at her disposal if she wishes to. Chris, you said three options, raise capital, sell assets or fail. Let's assume for good reason they don't want option three. Can you tell me what option one actually looks like? What would that look like, raising capital? Sure. So they would have to do a combination of, I think, equity and preferred. Uh, equity is the, is the best alternative. It would most likely be done, of course, below last night's price, uh, but maybe not necessarily a lot below. Um, it would allow the tangible capital to recover. 
take losses, move down the road, um, you know, live to fight another day. I think the question is, will the company dilute their shareholders, existing shareholders, by a, such a massive amount? I mean, we saw this happen in 2008, 9, and 10, so it's not the first time we've been through uh, this exercise. But I think it's a question of whether the board and the management team are willing to dilute their existing team. I think they're going to have to unless they can find a bid that's more reasonable. Christopher, we're talking about this particular company, which we're now debating whether it's idiosyncratic or whether it's representative of a perhaps larger ills in the regional banking sector, albeit a more concentrated version of it. How do you look at this in terms of what it exposed about the broader sector? So overall, credit quality is still really good. You know, banks give out way better information today than they did 15 years ago. So if we looked at uh, substandard uh, rated credits, special mention rated credits, anything that's not a pass, you typically have two to two and a half percent today that's problematic at a bank. That's, you know, a, a, a long way away from where we were at eight, nine, ten percent uh, back in the, uh, in, the, in the great financial crisis. So we have a long way to go for credit quality to match the last cycle. So I feel like the credit's not the issue. This is an interest rate risk problem. And of course, many banks have held to maturity securities available for sale securities that are below water. And even though rates are down, they're still below water easily um, 10 to 12 percent. So we have to re either raise capital to create confidence around those losses, or we simply have to wait. In the case of First Republic, it's, it's impossible to wait. They need a solution and they need one very quickly. We also have to think about what the implication is for lending and just loan creation. UBS analysts put this out. They say that bank commercial and industrial loan growth looks to drop about 5% in the last three months of the year and then 10% in the first quarter of 2024, which is associated with recession-like conditions. Do you agree? Are you starting to see that type of necessary response to the lack of deposits to the concern around the balance sheet? So I would disagree with the percentage change. I think that the tightening is clearly on. Banks are going to be very careful about the standards that they make and the way that they uh, allocate credit. However, the flip side is going to be that they're going to charge a lot more for that. And I think the earning asset repricing in the banks is actually better than folks realize, which could actually be uh, a, a positive for net interest margins beyond this quarter. This quarter will be a challenge, but I think in third and fourth quarter, we could see not only stabilization, but actually increases in margins. Chris, I get that this was only really kicked off in the middle of March, March 8th with SVB, but we've understood the rate story for a long time now. It's a pretty aggressive hiking cycle last year. I'm already getting messages from people saying, what took so long to consider asset sales this large? What have management been doing? Right. Well, it's a great point. I think that uh, a lot of uh, companies thought that they could simply use their liquidity from the home loan banks and other sources to work through the issue. And I think that was a false uh, false narrative for sure. I think the reality is if banks would have been uh, more likely to hold money at the Fed all along instead of buying treasuries, it would have been an easier solution. They wouldn't have had the mark-to-market issue. I think the mark-to-market accounting is what has, uh, has, has been harmful here, no different than 2008 and 9. Uh, but it is what it is. We have to account for this every quarter. And, and of course, I think the lack of understanding about when banks would see um, either sales of their securities or simply just the natural amortization, I think has been one of the challenges. Uh, we're getting better transparency, but I still think the, uh, the issue is to raise incremental capital to create confidence around the issues that we still have these mark-to-market Hey, Chris, just wonderful to get continued input from you on this story as it evolves. Thanks for being with us. Christopher Maranak of Jenny Montgomery Scott on the latest from First Republic. What we know for certain is perhaps any president of the United States, even of the Democratic persuasion, 
maybe would like to talk to a banker in our legislative branch this morning. He would, of course, pick the Republican from Arkansas. French Hill, he of Delta Trust years ago in Arkansas. The banker, French Hill, joins us this morning. French, I think you more than anyone in Congress are qualified to talk about the contagion effect of what happened with these marketing exercises on the West Coast. There are 74 banks in Arkansas. How are they affected by SVB and the alphabet soup that gets you to FRC? Well, Tom, it's uh, good to be with you this morning. You know, in staying in touch with my bank commissioner in Arkansas and touching base with the industry there, our, our bankers have, have done well. They've been able to uh, maintain and grow deposits. They had excellent earnings reports for the companies that are public. So the business seems solid there, and that's why I feel like uh, the contagion and challenges that we've had since the first week of March have been connected to these banks with mm-hmm. unusual business strategies. Long ago and far away, William Isaac, Robert McTeer, and others had to deal with a multiple bank national crisis. What action would you like to see from the executive branch to assist the troubled bank? You know, I think the Fed's taken uh, quick action. I think they have the tools that they need to uh, resolve the situations that we face right now, both in their temporary loan facilities, uh, in their 13 uh, uh, Section 13 powers that they have, and then uh, the use of Dodd-Frank's powers uh, in deposit insurance coverage if they feel like it's a systemic risk. Congressman, we have to shift gears a little bit to the debt ceiling debate, which a lot of people in markets aren't as focused on, but will be probably in a couple months' time or possibly sooner. Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House for Republicans, is trying to put together this Republican plan and push it through getting votes to uh, have this be the unified agreement at a time when a lot of people are pushing back in the Republican Party. Do you support this bill? Do you think it has what it needs to cross the line? Lisa, I do. I think Kevin McCarthy has listened to his conference uh, over the past 60 days and has created a consensus program where it meets his two standards. One, that we would not support a clean debt ceiling. We just don't have the support for that in our conference. And we wouldn't support a tax increase. And so he's crafted a a plan that has savings of $4.8 trillion over 10 years and raises the debt ceiling until next year. I think it will pass. It could pass today. And I think he's done a good job listening to our conference. And what we need, Lisa, is for President Biden to answer uh, Speaker McCarthy's call from February 1st. Let's meet and discuss this on a bipartisan basis. Well, a lot of people would argue and push back saying that basically this is a grab bag of uh, Republican talking points sort of underneath the, uh, the, the, the bill that Kevin McCarthy has put together. I mean, is it the right starting point? Do you feel like both sides, including the Republicans, are debating and arguing in good faith? Well, look, the uh, Senate Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer, can't pass a clean debt ceiling. And so it's to the House to lead by offering to increase the debt ceiling. But go back to some of the things we've been talking about now for two years, which is let's stop the pandemic level of spending. Let's go back to controlling spending. We propose uh, a spending cap on discretionary spending. And we propose things that will help the economy grow, get people back to work and save taxpayers money. I think it's a good list. I understand your point about what's in it. It, but I think it's a very good starting point, and it unifies Republicans to pass a debt ceiling. Increase. French, we've aged on this. The late, great Pete Peterson, Paul Songus lost way too early, Sam Nunn of Georgia. I've heard it all before. When are we going to get our act together 
such as a commission that will get this done, where a commission will, like, you know, Simpson Bowles, where we'll get a commission that will do the job Republicans and Democrats refuse to do. Boy, Tom, it's such a good point, and I do agree with you, particularly on uh, mandatory spending in our programs like Social Security, Medicare, the big programs that grow at 6% a year sometimes, three times the rate of growth in the economy. Uh, President Obama had that opportunity with Speaker Boehner, with Simpson Bowles, and no action took place. But when uh, President Johnson started the Great Society programs and spent trillions, uh, you had mandatory spending only as a third of the budget then, and obviously not a big interest cost. Now we have two-thirds of the budget as mandatory spending, and we're facing $10 trillion in interest only over the next 10 years. So I think a bipartisan commission right. to tackle up or down mandatory spending is critical, <clears throat> and I would support that. Away from your remit, Olivier Blanchard does the economics and says, we got lucky. We got a set of low interest rates, a low sluggish regime where growth could stay above interest rates. I don't want to go into the economics right now, but basically he's suggesting the government had a gift handed to them that allowed for this debt extension over the last 10 years. Do you feel now that things have changed? Now the mathematics is different at the Congressional Budget Office. I think so, Tom. I mean, you're facing interest costs that will exceed the uh, annual expenditures on national defense uh, in the coming year. And as I say, $10 trillion of interest over the next 10 years in the president's forecast. So we're talking about interest now truly crowding out spending priorities for Congress. I think that's a wake-up call for the Congress and a wake-up call to go back to debating how do we have zero deficits and how do we reform mandatory spending programs? Hey, Congressman, I'm confused and maybe because it's because I'm a foreigner and have only lived here <laughs> seven or eight years, so help me. I thought you had to raise the debt ceiling because of spending already approved by Congress. Is that not the case? Oh, Jonathan, you're very uh, good this morning. Yes, of course, you're raising the debt ceiling to cover spending that's already taken place. But it gives us an opportunity to have this two-way conversation between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And we've seen this all the time. This is why I think Joe Biden's a hypocrite on this issue, because he was the lead negotiator when he was vice president on increasing the debt ceiling with budget reforms. Nancy Pelosi in 2019 did the same thing to Donald Trump. Sorry, we can't raise a clean debt ceiling. We need budget reforms. So it's an opportunity for the two sides to have a conversation. That's why the debt ceiling vote is important. I think I'd go one step further. It's a game that Congress seems to play that misleads the public. I'm not here to advocate to say that we should have massive deficits and that the debt mm -hmm. should carry on piling up to 40, 50 trillion. Congressman, I just think it's disingenuous to sit here and say, we've got a debt problem, but at the same time, we can't raise the debt limit. Because ultimately, as you know, it's Congress, which you're a part of, that's already approved this spending. It doesn't matter who's in charge of Congress. You keep approving this spending. We can at the same time, can't we say that you need to raise the debt limit, but also we need to get debt under control? Can't you say both those same things simultaneously? Well, I think I have in this interview by answering Tom's question about a commission to get the long-term drivers of debt and deficit down. And also, to your point about bringing the two parties together to work on a bipartisan basis. So I take your point technically, but politicians need deadlines. They work on deadlines, and the debt ceiling is a hard deadline, and the budget 10-year forecast can be a more amorphous deadline. Congressman, it's a conversation we'll continue having, no doubt. French Hill. You bet. Thank Jonathan. you, sir. Thank you very much. No 
nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Timothy Horn is senior analyst at Opco Oppenheimer and joins us this morning with a real gift here on uh, Microsoft as well. Tim, let's go back to the time of Rick Sherland in an old Microsoft of old. Let's begin with a new Microsoft. How is this Microsoft different than the Microsoft Rick Sherland covered years ago at Goldman Sachs? How's a new Microsoft different than our stereotype? Well, for one, it's not a monopoly anymore, so they've learned how to compete and create new products, and they've totally positioned to the cloud, where they were really far behind Amazon, and as a result, they've had to be, I think, a lot more innovative. So you've seen them take the lead on AI, and they've kind of optimized their infrastructure, their whole business model right now around AI, which is very different. What is their use of cash picture? We saw a share buyback from Google that was stunning. We see it, frankly, from others outside the sector. But do you look in the forward here with this good news, with margin resiliency, with the defensiveness, a constructive tone? Do you look for a new use of cash and share buyback and dividend? They're going to be pretty steady. They, they have a steady dividend you know, that's going to grow in line with earnings. They steady buybacks are going to grow in line with earnings. They, they say they're going to spend a lot more money on CapEx you know, for AI. These new NVIDIA chips are very expensive, and they're buying an awful lot of them. Do you buy the promise of OpenAI, Tim? Uh, totally. Uh, completely and totally, I buy into it. I think it's going to be the most profound thing we've seen in 10, you know, maybe 20 years or longer. I kind of think back uh, when I first got on the Internet 30 years ago, you know, how uh, you know how much of a revelation that was and how much it changed my life. And I think we're going to look at the same thing. So then if that's the case, is it a real liability for Alphabet that they kind of downplayed it, perhaps to get a competitive edge with respect to Microsoft, perhaps to downplay fears that they're going to lose some sort of preeminence with their Google search engine to Microsoft, but do you think that they're going to be left behind because they're not emphasizing it to the same degree? It's going to be the critical six, nine months ahead of us uh, because OpenAI gets better and better the more people that you have using it. But we know that Google and Amazon are throwing billions of dollars at AI. We know they have very, very good large language models. The key is they got to get them rolled out and get people using them or else Microsoft will once again become the operating system like they did with the PC for one of the most important technologies uh, for the next 20 years. I understand the promise of this uh, purely from a technological point of view and the promise in terms of efficiency as well as productivity, Tim. But what is the time frame for this being actually profitable for the likes of Microsoft? For OpenAI, for them, they have a problem a product called GitHub Copilot, which is helping people write software. And it's improved the amount of software any programmer can write by 50%. They charge $10 a month for that. And they have um, 
10,000 companies using that product, they're going to charge similar uh, kind of add-on for Office 365, and that will probably be in the next 6 to 12 months. They'll start really adding, adding on prices on these different applications. But importantly, they're just bundling together a whole set of new products. They're getting a whole set of new customers they never would have gotten yeah. before. Uh, new startups would have gone to Amazon. Now they're going to Microsoft. Hey, Tim, you've been doing this for ages. Can you extrapolate what you witnessed yesterday with Microsoft up pre-market 7, maybe even 8%? Can you extrapolate that over to all the other techs, over to Apple, over to NVIDIA, over to Broadcom, etc.? That's a great question. I, I think Microsoft's gaining share. So it, it's going to be a little difficult. I mean, Amazon's quarter is going to be very important. But I think this is company by company. You know, talking to them after the call, they're not trying to say they're a leading indicator on macro. Um, you know, they don't really know where macro's going. It probably is slowing down. Uh, if you listen to Mr. Druckenmiller, he's calling, as you were referencing before, for a hard landing. Uh, but they think they're gaining share on like six or seven different products, and they're probably right. So I'm not entirely you know, sure what it means for the whole tech center sector at this point. Tim, as you talk about this arms race in artificial intelligence, where are the ethical concerns, especially as a lot of tech giants have been talking about perhaps pumping the brakes a little bit and understanding it a little bit better before it gets rolled out in some sort of mass? It's a great question. I'm, I'm no expert on it, but, you know, automobiles kill a lot of people. Uh, firearms kill a lot of people. go on and on. A lot of medicine kills a lot of people. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we've kind of stopped developing medicines. And I, I think the genie's out of the box here in AI. We're moving forward. You know, whatever happens, we're just going to need some regulatory, uh, I think, guardrails around it. Hey, Tim, thanks for the latest on Microsoft. That stock is up by close to 8%. That's the name we'll be focused on going into the open about. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.